welcome to Bumper Sticker Faith. My name is Sam Key, and you've stumbled upon episode 100. 100. We made it. I can't believe it. We're here. And uh, I've heard other podcasts that they do something, they do really special things for like the 100th episode or milestones. And so I thought I would do the same thing. And that's why I have the guest that I have on the show, because she's a special person. And I wanted to talk about this great topic with her. So today joining us is uh, Annie Crawford. Annie, welcome to Bumper Stick Faith. Thank you so much for having me, Sam. I didn't realize this Whoops. was the 100th episode. Oh, yeah. And uh, yeah. I feel very blessed to be on with you. Yeah, it is. And um, I learned about you recently because I heard you on um, the Symbolic World podcast talking with Jonathan Peugeot. And I really like <laughs> Jonathan Peugeot and his uh, and his brother's work as well, Matir's <laughs> book. And we'll probably touch on those uh, as we go here. Um, but yeah, uh, the Symbolic World and Jonathan Peugeot has made a big impact uh, on my life and thinking about um, living uh, the the best way possible in in this world and kind of looking at my faith uh, differently and more in in a better way I think. Yeah. But you had the opportunity to be on there and to be and to be connected uh, with him. You've written a couple of articles for the Symbolic World blog too. So how how did you get connected with um, Jonathan in, in doing that? Just yeah, to well, start us off. Yeah, like you. I stumbled upon one of his videos, uh, actually his early video on zombies, the meaning of zombies in film, which is a fantastic lecture. Oh, and I yeah. thought immediately, this, this man is doing what I am wanting to do and trying to do and what I think we'll talk maybe in a minute about the cultural apologetics program at uh, Houston Christian University. Mm -hmm what that program is trying to do to try and uh, help people see the inherent meaning of things and how that connects to the Christian faith and the Christian view of the world. So when I saw that uh, lecture of his on the zombie apocalypse, I thought this guy is doing great work. And so I started working through all of his videos and his lectures and was so encouraged to see him, you know, communicating many of the ideas that I developed in my own work and teaching and writing, and then also learning some, some new patterns and insights from him that I found really, like you, enriching. Um, and so when he started his Symbolic World uh, website, uh, I joined, and on that website, there was, you know, immediately conversation about C.S. Lewis and the resonances between uh, Pajot's Eastern Orthodox ancient faith perspective and Lewis's medieval mm -hmm. sacramental perspective. And so when those resonances started to emerge in the conversation, I thought, I love Lewis. I teach Lewis. I offered to teach a Lewis course on the Ransom Trilogy, and off we went, and that took off. So that's kind of organically how I became, you know, involved over there. I'm no, I don't have any official role. It's, you know, if I have an article, I send it over and they, they say yes or no. So it's a great community for those who are wanting to, you know, grow an understanding of the things we're going to talk about today uh, to, to check out. And uh, for my audience too, Annie, uh, you are, um, 
you are a cultural apologist, a classical educator, and homeschooling mom. You co-founded the Vine Classical Community, um, where you teach apologetics and humanities courses. You teach for Wilson Academy online, and you help develop the faith and culture uh, ministry at Christ Church uh, Anglican of Austin. And you also help to begin the Unexpected Journal. And I want to ask what that is uh, as well. Um, but Annie has degrees from Wheaton, um, um, uh, Masters of Christian Apologetics from Houston Baptist University, and somewhere in there, a degree in environmental science, oh, from the <laughs> University of Oregon. Um, I, I think those are, what, what a great combination of degrees. So you have the science in there, the literature, but then the apologetics where I think, I think the intersection of all of those is, is, is a powerful uh, voice uh, in our world right now. But what's the, what's the unexpected journal? Yeah, thanks for asking. So the Unexpected Journal is a journal of cultural apologetics that uh, I helped start with a group of other graduates from the Houston Baptist. They've changed their name now, Houston Christian University Program. Uh, And we started that in 2018. So maybe to explain what an Unexpected Journal is, I can explain what cultural apologetics uh, is. So most of your, okay, yeah. I think most of your listeners, Christians, are familiar with the term apologetics, which comes from um, Peter's exhortation in First Peter for us to have a reason for the hope we have in Christ. You know, basically, Peter instructing us to to help people make sense of the Christian faith. Uh, scripture calls Christ the Logos. He is the Logos. That word means. He is the reason. He is the order. He is the word uh, that shapes all things. That Christ is the source of reason. So worship of Christ, Christianity, should be reasonable. So apologetics is helping people see how Christianity, Christian truth claims are reasonable. Now, most people think of, I think today, arguments, rational arguments for the existence of God or for evidence of the resurrection. But the first... uh, apologist, uh, you know, one of the first recognized apologists, Justin Martyr in the second century, you, know, you look at his apology mm-hmm. and it talks both about reason, but also stories. And that, you know, in the pre-modern world, we didn't think of reason as sep- something separate from the rest of life, from imagination, from our experience. And so cultural apologetics mm-hmm. is looking at how do we integrate reason with imagination and experience. And and um, so Lewis is considered the father of cultural apologetics. And, and we see in Lewis's work, he had these arguments like in mere Christianity, but then he also had uh, stories like Narnia and the Ransom Trilogy so that both through imagination and reason, mm-hmm. he was working to help people not just see the the rational truth claims of Christianity, but for it to make sense, for it to be plausible, for it to feel desirable. So cultural apologetics is all about looking at the way that things have meaning in their cultural embodiment. Stories, films, music, architecture, uh, these things communicate meaning. And so the cultural apologists over at Unexpected Journal 
we follow the lead of Lewis and work to help the Christian faith have meaning and imaginative sense for people by looking at the way that Christian ideas are materialized in culture, in stories, in architecture, uh, in our festivals, in our films. So we have issues on science fiction and Shakespeare, and we just came out with one on leisure. What does leisure and uh, play have to do with the Christian wow. faith? So that's a, a long answer to your question of what cultural apologetics and the unexpected journal is all about. Is that like um, another way of, is it synonymous with a sacramental or symbolic view of the world? Um, having those those two uh, things come together, the reason plus the embodiment of the reason, like, is that what you mean? And so let's get into that. What yeah. What is the sacramental view of the world or the symbolic view of the world? Because these are these are powerful ideas that I think mm -hmm. most people in the evangelical church haven't heard of, aren't aware of, but yet these ideas are growing and they they are mm -hmm. really powerful. Uh, mm -hmm. When when you when you learn to see the world and when you learn to read scripture in this way, so are 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 they uh, similar? What you're saying with those views? Yes, definitely connected. And and I think you're right that. Christians are realizing right now, you know, we we are born into, let's say, the waters of modernism. And and modernism is a as a way of thinking about the world that tends to separate things. See that the spirit is separate from the body, or reason mm. is separate from the imagination. And and Christians are starting to realize that we've sort of um imbibed that attitude without realizing it. And so the the work of cultural apologetics, which very much is a work that is comes out of a sacramental worldview, is about helping people reintegrate their understanding. So let me define for you um, sacramental worldview. So a sacrament, that word means a visible sign of an invisible grace. So we might be Christians might be familiar with the mm. term sacrament. We think of baptism where we have a, a visible, physical sign of, of being lowered into water and then raised out of water. And that visible sign is an expression, an embodiment of a spiritual reality. We are dying to our sins and mm -hmm. rising to new life in Christ. So, so sacrament is this visible sign of an inward grace. But what we've forgotten is that you know, the, mm. the sacraments work because they are uh, situated in a sacramental world. The whole world is a visible expression of spiritual truths. Scripture tells us in Psalm 19, which was Lewis's mm. favorite psalm, that the heavens declare mm. the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork and day into day and night into night, the whole world is pouring forth speech telling us about spiritual truths, mm -hmm. telling us about the creator. So that's really what a sacramental worldview is. It's, it's remembering that the whole world is God's artwork, his poetry. It's full of meaning. He is communicating to us constantly, and we want to learn to listen. So that, you know, and this is really synonymous with what Jonathan Pajot calls the symbolic worldview, because a symbol is, is something that has concentrated meaning, right? So if we think uh, 
every flower has 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 meaning to it. Every flower is is a meaningful expression of God's greatness. A rose is kind of a symbolic concentration of of the meaning of a flower. Um, so I see sacramental worldview, symbolic worldview as really synonymous. Um, and then part of what cultural apologetics is trying to help us do, pay attention to the meaning of things, the meaning of the things that God has made. And people may, when you hear these different terms, uh, sacramental or symbolic, you may think that uh, we're saying something that's weaker or not true, or uh, but that's not the case. Uh, when, like, I I like I like words and language, and the word um, symbolic comes from the Greek symbolo, which yeah. means to to throw down alongside of. And so you have this this thing, like you said, a flower. It's a real thing, but you throw down alongside of that this meaning. So you have meaning and matter together. And as you said before, in our modern times, we we separate things. I love that. That's a great understanding of we just separate everything, probably so that we can analyze it or look at it or, or maybe because we don't think things have meanings anymore. Uh, but what the symbolic or the sacramental view does, it, it, it tries to... Uh, bring those worlds, those great worlds uh, back together um, for us. Correct? Yeah. Yeah. I love that you mentioned the etymology of symbolic because I learned this summer from DC Schindler um, that, you know, symbolic does mean to throw together. And I love how you say meaning and matter that, mm -hmm. well, diabolical is the opposite of symbolic. Diabolic means to mm -hmm. cast apart. Isn't yep. that, isn't that fascinating? Right. And, and mm -hmm. you know, as you're saying, to be fair to our wow. modern world, to separate, I think you're right mm -hmm. that the original intention in, in the development of modern thinking was, was to separate this from that. So I could, could understand it. And I think that's a valid move. So long as we remember it's provisional, right. That we would look at the part in order to maybe understand something about the part but we ought not forget its integration, it, that it belongs within the whole. And so I think that's what happened in our modern world is we started separating things so we could understand them. You know, we started separating matter from meaning so that we could, uh, you know, create a, a steam engine, let's say. But then we forgot, we, we forgot to put it back mm -hmm. together, to put it back into its integrated, meaningful context. That's, you know, that's what I really am trying to do in all my work and I'm encouraged to hear you saying, Sam, that you see that gaining ground in, in the world. I hope so. I think so. Um, but I'm encouraged to, to hear that you see that as well. Mm -hmm. Well, and like when it comes to when it comes to science and looking at things, I mean, I think this is a pretty typical um, experience that. Uh, people have when they're growing growing up, going to school, and like for instance, you, I remember in my freshman English class taking, uh, well, taking English, but we we studied the Greek myths and the um, the idea that we that we learned and, and imbibed was uh, that these myths about Jupiter or Zeus, like these were just their ways of explain of explaining scientific things that we understand in a different way now, like, 
like that that was good for them have poseidon control the ocean and that but now that we understand natural laws that we don't need poseidon anymore and we need to separate him out so that we can actually figure out what's going on and like that's i think that's what what most people even like right now into adulthood in the church like think that that's what actually was going on um but that's not that's that's not the case that's um it, it wasn't as if they needed like a poseidon for instance because they didn't understand uh ocean currents or or all that maybe they didn't understand them as as well as we do but th- they had a there there's a, there's another meaning that they had that we've actually lost am, am i making sense yes yes i i think much of what the ancients were doing with their myths, with their stories, were trying to perceive and communicate the meaning of things, right? So I think Poseidon's a great example. I'll talk to my students about this sometimes, because if you live by the ocean, you experience the moodiness of the sea, right? The storms come and the waves come mm-hmm. at unexpected time. And and it really is an image of, uh, uh, there's a temperament to the ocean. And then in the stories of Poseidon, he's mm-hmm. really pretty temperamental. Uh, I'm, re- I'm teaching the Odyssey right now, and Poseidon is, is angry at Odysseus for killing Cyclops. And, and the students are talking about how, you know, in, in these Greek myths, you know, Zeus has a certain personality that fits with the personality you see in the heavens and the, and the thunder and the lightning. And Poseidon has a different personality that reflects, uh, you know, the meaning that they see in the ocean. So I think, you know, what what the ancients were doing with their storytelling, with their myths, is trying to communicate the meaning that they saw. Um, and, you know, sometimes they were wrong often about what they saw, right? Because, uh, you know, the, the pagan world, the Greek world was... Um, cut off from God's people as a result of the fall. And so they were looking at the world through that mirror darkly, trying to perceive, trying to grope towards meaning, sometimes Mm -hmm. perceiving things well, sometimes not. Um, But I agree with you that, you know, just looking at the myths as an alternative to scientific explanations is not really at all what was what was going on. Yeah, and you use the word too a, a meaning, and that's I think that's the the clarifying point that th- that's the question that they ask. That's the question that is is good and healthy to ask. Like, what's the meaning of this ocean, or what's the meaning of this flower? Today, we we that's not our question. It's it's what is this flower made of? Yes. Um, how does this flower work? You know, but but we don't look at the flower and say, what does this what does this dandelion mean? Mm. Uh, what does this ocean mean? What does the moon mean? What does water mean? Like, what's the meaning of it? That's the question that we don't ask, right? Um, well said. Which that's what the sacramental view of the world is, is trying to recover. Yes, yes. And, you know, I want to point out for um, Christians, you know, that who are trying to understand this, it's actually necessary in order for us to really understand scripture because scripture is full of poetry mm-hmm. and poetry works through 
contemplating the meaning of things. So I love to take my students to Psalm 1. The righteous man is like a tree who who lives beside streams of water. Okay, well, if I want to understand what scripture is telling me, I need to be a poet and take take time to think about the meaning of a tree mm. and its steadfastness and 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 the way that it 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 plays the long game and it digs its roots deep into the ground. You know, I need to meditate on the poetry of a tree. Mm. If I'm going to receive what scripture has to tell me about what it is to be righteous and faithful and to and to live um, like Christ. So, you know, this isn't attending to the poetry, to the meaning of things is actually a way of honoring scripture, of, of honoring the world that God has made, um, which I think sometimes, you know, Christians feel like, again, because that modern way of separating things, we don't realize that it soaks into us. And so, you know, when Christians, I think, go to scripture, I think they feel pushed to choose between, well, did Moses literally, historically, factually separate the waters of the Red Sea? Or was that just a a archetype, a poetic meaning. They, they feel pushed to choose between. Mm-hmm. And so then when you start to talk about the poetic mythic meaning of scripture, they feel like you're denying the historicity, the, the, the factualness of scripture. Mm-hmm. And I think that's just a false dichotomy that we don't in any way need to accept. Um, and, and that in fact, to, to be faithful to scripture is to affirm that both. And it's as Lewis says, you know, the story of Christ, the story of God's people is the myth, the poetry, the meaning made fact incarnated in history. Christianity is all about affirming both of those. Yeah. So that gets us into, I think, this idea of scientism and science. What are, what are the differences between that or, or, or what is, what is scientism? Um, yeah, great question. And that will that will launch us into talking about that hideous strength. Um, so science, yeah. science is the study of well, you know, in the pre-modern world, science just really more meant subject. Um, but it's come to mean in the modern parlance the study of physical reality through a certain method, right, of hypothesis experimentation. Um, so, and science was really born out of a sacramental worldview. It, you know, modern science was birthed within medieval Christendom because, mm. because of the sacramental worldview, which affirmed that God has created a meaningful, rational, ordered world that we, as rational, meaning-seeking creatures, can look at and read and discern. So there's really no reason to to accept this myth uh, that that you know that faith and science are at odds or that Christianity and science were at were at war. You, you if you go and look at the history, that's not at all the case. The the founders of modern science were themselves devout Christians. Uh, Johannes Kepler famously. Uh, said that in doing his scientific work, he was reading God's thoughts after him. So, so science is this study of God's world mm. rooted in a belief 
that God made his, that the Christ, the logos, the reason made a rationally ordered world that we can discern. So, so science, that's science. Scientism, you know, emerges mm-hmm. out of this modern, like I said, the, this, so science will separate the material or the part in order to study it. But a Christian science will remember that that part, mm-hmm. that material part is still integrated into a, a, a sacred world. What happened is doing, doing science, making, you know, looking at the part separately became so powerful. Science, uh, we gained so much scientific knowledge so quickly. And that scientific knowledge gave us so much technological advancement and sense of power that I think in our bent human souls, right, modern started to just focus on the material part that was giving us a lot of uh, powerful knowledge, right? The human heart is in in our sin always Mm -hmm. bent toward power. And so scientism emerges out of this uh, focus on the part and, and how focusing on the material alone would give us power to where, you know, we tend to start to, um, our belief follows our practice, uh, which is why, you know, that's an important principle to think about, but our belief tends to follow our practice. And so here we are looking at the material world, gaining so much power, and we start to think about the world as only material, as merely matter. Uh, and so that scientism is the belief that physical reality is the only reality, and therefore science is the only way of gaining real knowledge. Only scientific truths, only statements about physical reality are true statements. Scientism would see then mm-hmm. all statements about value, um, morality as personal preference or psychological um, projections. You know, this is where maybe Freud comes in. So scientism, I think of mm-hmm. it that, so let, let's let's be classical and think of scientism in terms of a myth. So I don't know if, you, mm-hmm. if you've heard of the myth, well, the story of Procrustes. So Procrustes was a Greek mm. robber. He, uh, he, he would... Uh, kidnap people or people would come to visit him and and he 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 would rob them and part of how he would um you know impose physical force on them is that he made an iron bed a small iron bed and he would put his victims on the iron bed and anything that didn't fit he would just cut off and i think that 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 story mm. is a great analogy for what scientism does is it has its small little iron bed of of analysis of physical things. And it puts things onto its iron bed and anything that doesn't fit, like mind, free will, beauty, morality, it just cuts off as not being actually real. So scientism is a a procrustean Mm -hmm. bed that we take to reality and we end up cutting off all the most valuable things, love, hope, faith, kindness, mm-hmm. generosity, these spiritual things that actually make, give our physical life value and meaning. I, I love that illustration of the uh, Procrustean bed. And I've 
pictured it like this before in case uh, Christians out there think that they haven't swallowed the uh, scientism pill themselves. Yeah. It is the water that we're swimming in. Like, for instance, uh, I want you to imagine that you have two guys uh, at the front of at the front of a room. One is a, a renowned scientist and he has all these degrees. He's won all these prizes for his scientific work. And he says that he believes in God. And now the second person is a, let's see, I don't know, maybe he's a, a youth pastor. And he stands up in the front of the room and he says that he believes in God. Now, which person, be honest, would you be more impressed with? Which, which person's video would you share more on the internet? Which person would you, whose book would you buy more? And the fact is, is that we're more in awe of science because we think, think that science has the best knowledge that the, offers the most truth, that it's, it's, it's the supreme of, 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 of everything. And so we believe the scientist who says that he believes in God, like we, we're more in awe of that because, because we hold science much higher than spiritual things, then if a poet says he believes in God or, mm -hmm. you know, we, we, the, then the, we just call those opinions. And like you said, yes. we classify them as, as lower, right? Yeah. So I think that's a great example. Yeah. Even the, yeah, even in the church, uh, it, it's, and it's hard to, it's hard to get ourselves, it's hard to get ourselves out of that mindset, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I do feel like this is why, you know, I, I want to be careful here for, for your sake. The pandemic was really hard on people and churches um, because of the way that scientism has so shaped us that we very much reverence people with scientific expertise mm -hmm. and and we're inclined mm -hmm. to, you know, so, so, you know, big question for churches and the pandemic was when do we meet together? Um, and we were inclined to say, well, we should meet together on a Sunday when the scientists tell us we should. The, the problem with that, and we want to, yep. we're not anti science, we're not, uh, we do want to consider the material, physical, medical reality, but we forgot that scientists can only tell us, let's say, what the risks are. Science can't tell us what is worth taking a risk, right? Um, I have this quote from Lewis. I wrote down, let's see, where did he say this? Oh, I can't, I can't find it right now, but you know, a scientist can just tell us the facts of the material matter, but it, but it's the job of of the church, of the priest, or even the 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 prudential decision of a magistrate or a ruler to decide what worth what risks are worth taking. Those aren't scientific questions; mm -hmm. those are ethical, spiritual questions that we need to take the scientific information mm -hmm. in into our account. But it can't determine. Um, you know, whether or not the, the, the medical risk of, let's say, getting COVID was worth going to my grandma's funeral, 
maybe my maybe spiritually <sighs> the importance of being there uh in in relationship was more more valuable than the risk. That's not a medical decision. That's not a scientific decision. That's a spiritual decision. So even though I think that's hard to talk about and complicated, I do really think our experience through 2020 and throughout the pandemic really showed us the way that we've we've we kind of default to thinking the scientist is the one who can tell us the the full truth about things rather than understanding the limited nature of the knowledge that they offer. Yeah. I, and I found myself slipping into that mindset as well, you know, especially early on during the pandemic when there was so much uncertainty, Yeah, you found yourself, I found myself like groping for, okay, well, well, well what do the, what does the science say? What do the scientists say? Because uh, if they say what, whatever they say, I'll trust that most of all, but that just, again, that just betrays my, uh, idolizing or, or deifying those scientists, making them supreme in my outlook versus and, uh, there's a place for science and in, in, obviously, but I think we need to learn to see them more on the same level of, of, a, of mm-hmm. an authority structure, I guess. So like if I'm, if my wife's going to give birth to a baby, you know, I'm not going to take her to a professional wrestler to do that, you know, if, um, but you take them to the, the, the right person or if, or if I'm in a dark alley and I'm being threatened, I'm not going to long for Dr. Fauci to be by my side. I'm going to want the professional wrestler right there, you know, cause, cause he offers something, uh, you know, a different. So uh, based on what you're trying to do, what's important, um, I guess that's what we have to um, we have to realize yeah. and not elevate science to be the supreme thing. Yeah, and to so how does that to, get us into uh, get us into that? Go ahead. Oh, as you say, and and to remember just one other point to remember that scientists are humans. They have bad days. They're also mm. sinners. They are motivated. You know, they have like all of us. They're tempted by power. They're tempted, you know, to make money, to uh, advance their career. Um, that that science is something not pure and pristine and separate from the mess of human relationships mm. and human politics. And and so, just I think part of breaking ourselves from scientism is remembering that it, that that they're humans, like like you said, just like us humans who have a mix of motivation and good days and bad days and and that science is nested within a political social economic context as well and so we you know i think this is part of why we need to remember that science is not a perfect and pure pristine uh endeavor and i and i think one way christians you know c- can we realize our temptation to that scientism is in those debates about, um, you know, Genesis or places where it feels like sci- what, you know, what science says is in conflict with what scripture says. I would just encourage Christians, you know, it, it seems like we're all very ready to have skepticism towards scripture about the things we don't like, you know, did Paul really say, or we're, we're, we're ready to be skeptical 
about things that scripture says, we should be as skeptical, more skeptical of the things that let's Mm. say science says, because science is conducted by humans. And also it changes as our knowledge grows, the, the science grows. So at the very least to cure ourselves as Christians of scientism, we can center our default biases. I should be as skeptical of what the scientists say or, you know, what the, the, the state of our scientific knowledge as I am anything else, as I am anything else. That definitely gets us into C.S. Lewis's uh, third book of the Ransom Trilogy, uh, That Hideous Strength, because towards the end, you know, all the, all the biases and subjective motives are kind of made clear. Um, but could you um, get us into that book, uh, inter- introduce us to That Hideous Strength, and, and then reflect on how, uh, what Lewis is saying about scientism uh, in it? Yeah, my pleasure. This book, That Hideous Strength, when it first came out, was not well-received by critics, but was immediately popular with the public and continues to be. And I keep hearing people say, you know, it's prophetic. It's like he was reading the future. Um, so so let me tell you a little bit about the, the story. So it's the third <laughs> book, That Hideous Strength is the third book in the Ransom Trilogy, sometimes called the Space Trilogy. And the first two books are more classic science fiction. Uh, The first book, especially, you have the main character, Ransom, who travels to outer space and he goes to Mars. And in the second book, he travels to Venus. And in those first two books in the trilogy, what Lewis was really wanting to do was to revive this sacramental understanding of the cosmos, so Ransom goes to space as a modern materialist, expecting it to be cold and dead and empty and scary. And instead he finds that it's not space, it's the heavens. It's full of life and angels and archangels and, and beauty and wonder. And so in those first two books, it's about redeeming the imagination, about Lewis trying to cultivate a, a sacred sacramental imagination again, helping us to look at uh, the heavens as a place of beauty and meaning. The third book is feels very different. Lewis in this third book brings us back to earth where that relationship between heaven and earth, that, that sacramental view is broken. So, so Ransom He, in his adventure to Mars and to Venus, he learns to see, again, the union between heaven and earth, as you said, between meaning and matter. Now he comes back to earth and that relationship is is Mm. totally broken. The, the, The relationship between meaning and matter between heaven and earth is shattered. And the third book asks, that hideous strength asks, how can this be healed? Here we are. In this modern moment where, where the relationship between heaven and earth is, is broken, how do we respond to that? How do we heal this relationship? And one thing that's so interesting about the book is that it begins with the word marriage or matrimony. And that as, as Lewis mm. considers, how do we reintegrate heaven and earth, matter and meaning? He's going to, to tell that story by looking at the marriage of Mark and Jane Stedek. So this this broken relationship between heaven and earth is told through this symbolic microcosm 
of the marriage between a man and a woman. And Lewis wants to show us how the, the restoration of our relationship with each other is part of how we will restore the relationship between heaven and earth, between spirit and body. So, so you, the, the story starts with Mark and Jane Studdick and they don't, they're not happy. They don't have a good marriage and into the town where they live comes the NICE, which is the National Institute for Coordinated Experiments. So yeah, it's just the big scientific bureaucratic organization <laughs> that moves into town. Um, and you know, I think of the NICE, it would, Lewis is, is making a pun here uh, on the etymology of the word nice, which in the Latin means ignorant. Mm -hmm. So isn't that fun? Um, so the or, NIC or to deceive. Yes, yes. So, so the NIC is kind of like the NIH or the WHO, which is a a non political, you know, scientific institution that is intended to solve the world's problems by you know through health. Um, because here's the scientism. If all reality is physical reality, and then therefore a human is purely a, a physical material organism, then all our problems are health problems, are they not? Are they not problems of the, the mm. right ordering of the material body? And so this is why the NICE, you know, gets put in charge of planning agriculture, city planning, care of the environment, police work, social, you know. Because all of it, in a scientific view, is seen as issues of health, of the right ordering of the human organism that can be solved by medical administration. And so Lewis tells us that, that, that the story of the NICE that moves into town is the story of Babel. The title, That Hideous Strength, comes from a medieval poem with a passage about the Tower of Babel. And so Lewis says, you know, this scientific mm. bureaucratic organization wow. is the attempt to rebuild Babel, to consolidate power into one technological uh, center. In a, an essay called Is Progress Possible? Um, Lewis says that in, in a modern world that's accepted science, as, as the only way of knowing, then our political powers will more and more base their claims to rule us on claims to scientific knowledge. Um, he says that, let's see, I'm trying to find this other quote. In a word, in one sentence, if you want to know what that hideous strength is all about, then it the proposition would be that under modern conditions, any effective invitation to hell will certainly appear in the guise of scientific planning. So the NICE comes into town and is, you know, as Lewis says, this invitation to hell, which is the total final separation between heaven and earth, between spirit and body. That's what hell is 
under the guise, under the language of scientism, which is the effort to reduce, we're going to get rid of heaven. We're going to get rid of spirit. We're going to get rid of God by reducing everything to the material, which we can then take control of. So, so that's what that hideous strength is about. Um, Mark, the, the husband in this story is, is very ambitious and he is sucked into career advancement uh, and by becoming part of the NICE. And he is led on this hellish journey through the bowels of this institute, you know, rev- which reveal slowly kind of layer by layer, the Kafka-esque convoluted layers of obfuscation and equivocation and manipulation that end up characterizing uh, these kinds of organizations. And Lewis really leads us through Mm. in Mark's story, the logic of scientism, how reducing everything to merely material reality ends up destroying nature, morality, human dignity. And even Mm. in the end of the story, uh, reason itself. So, so Mark becomes trapped within Babel. Jane, his wife, she's kind of left home alone while Mark's pursuing his career. And she becomes friends with um, people who know Ransom, the character from the first two books. And Ransom, you know, he's been to space. He's met angels and archangels. And, and now he is here uh, directing and leading this little, basically Christian commune, this community of people, a f- handful of people who are committed to resisting the evil growing at the NICE. And so then the story unfolds, you know, here Mark is sucked into the NICE. Uh, Jane becomes part of the, um, the, the, I don't want to say it, the resistance community. And then the story becomes, how do we mm-hmm. live in this moment where scientific bureaucratic mono, you know, organizations are trying to, to take control. How do we live faithfully? And, and what I love about that hideous strength is that Lewis affirms we live faithfully in such a moment, not by trying to grasp at power ourselves, not by trying to fight the NIC on its own terms, but by prayer by husbandry, by taking care mm. of the home and the family that we're given, mm-hmm. by not participating, by non-participation in what the NICE is doing, and by just simple, courageous obedience to the thing that God has given you today. And I find that answer so encouraging and so humane because we can look at, you know, the things going on mm. in our world the issues with a, uh, you know, like all of the big problems that feel so insurmountable. What encouragement does Lewis have to give us through that hideous mm-hmm. strength? Be faithful in the humane things I've given you to do. I, you know, in the end of the story, it is heaven that comes to defeat the NICE, right? The battle belongs yeah. to the Lord. Be faithful in the little things that I have given you and yeah. watch the Lord faithfully accomplish his purposes for you. That's what struck me about uh, the book too, because you're anticipating 
a huge climactic battle uh, at the end. But what you have when the you know the 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 good guys are defeating the bad guys, what you have though is these I guess uh, maybe three different areas where you have the people at St. Anne's, kind of the the normal average people like uh, Jane and. Uh, and her friends in one room, and they're faithfully waiting and praying. They're having community with each other. They're telling jokes and stories, and they're just waiting. Meanwhile, upstairs on the upper levels, that's where you have Ransom and Merlin. I want to get the Merlin. But you have them doing their spiritual uh, work as well. And But it is very, like, anticlimactic. Meanwhile, at the NICE, you have evil self-destructing and and that's the uh that's the encouragement to that that anything uh without god at, at the top of it any anything that uh tries to create a tower of babel it will self-destruct and so you have evil basically uh, taking care of itself or like Shel, Shel Silverstein's poem, Hungry Mungry, with the guy who's uh, eating everything. And he, at the end of the poem, he ends up eating himself. But that's what you have evil doing. You have uh, it, it coming undone and, and destroying itself. So I love how you put that, though. In these times, what are we called to do? We're called to live faithfully, to have community, to pray, and, um, and, to, be, and to be faithful. I love that picture. Yeah. And I do think, you know, it's important not to participate. And that can take courage, right? That mm. that 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 the the beast Babel will try to suck us in. So even though we aren't going to take up arms and destroy it ourselves, we part of our faithfulness is, you know, non-compliance, non-participation. I, I can't participate in that. Um, and and that can really take genuine courage and obedience on the part of Christians. Um, but I love, you know, yes, how you point out and emphasize the way that really evil will collapse in on itself. Uh, Lewis compares the structure of the NICE uh, in an essay called The Inner Ring to an onion. You've got these layers of power, mm. but on the inside, there's actually nothing. There's nothing. And, and that is the nature of sin, right? Is by turning away from God, we turn in on ourselves, but there's nothing there without God. And so it will collapse in on itself because at the center is a big, is a big nothing. Um, we just have to faithfully wait, right? Faithfully endure um, till, till that moment. And uh, as you pointed out to the, uh, the people who are waiting and being faithful, um, it's, Yes, they're not participating in the evil, but they're also participating with creation. They're befriending bears and animals, and they continue to, um, I don't know, they continue to um, tr strive to see the sacramentalness of of their world. And I think that's a beautiful picture, yeah. too. Um, but I want to talk about Merlin, too, because... Okay. We're, we're surprised by Merlin in there. What role does Merlin play in all this? Yeah, he, he's a tough character. And this is you know, one thing I talked about Jonathan Pajot, talked about with Jonathan Pajot in his podcast, because Merlin is a, is, a, is a tricky character. He's, a, he's an in-between character. 
So in the story, we're not sure whose side he's going to be on. The NICE is actually trying to get Merlin um, because he's a magician, right? So he has, Merlin has magical powers. And Lewis in The Abolition of Man says that science is the magician's twin. And and he wants to make this connection Mm. through the NICE's desire for Merlin that science, scientism, let's say, and magic are twins because at bottom, they both just want power over the world. So, you know, in the, in the Renaissance, there was actually an exploration of, you know, science is growing, so is magic. Science won out because it worked and magic didn't. But both were trying to find techniques that allowed us to exercise power over the world. So the NICE, they want Merlin because they see Mm. him as, his magic as, just another mode of technique to exercise material power over the world. So until, you know, about two-thirds into the book, you're not sure if Merlin's going to come back and be on the side of evil. Is magic evil? Or is he going to be on the side of um, Mm. ransom and heaven? And he ends up, I mean, we're okay talking about spoilers. Is that, are we good if we? Yes. Okay. <laughs> um, Merlin ends up being on the side of, of heaven. And what I think is tricky to sort out is, is magic, you know, for Christians, is magic evil? He's a wizard. Aren't wizards evil? How are we to understand Merlin, this magician, being on the side of heaven. And, you know, I think, I think it's uncomfortable. I don't know that Lewis, um, fully offers a satisfactory answer to why it's okay for a magician to actually be on the side of, of heaven. And I wonder, I understand what you think about that question and and where you, where you want to go with your discussion of Merlin. I think that Merlin, um, I think he's important because he he comes from the world of the more sacramental or symbolic view of reality, and he he um, is a throwback to that. What we've forgotten because so so much of what he does in, in Lewis's little comments about him throughout throughout the book um, have uh, Merlin. I can't think of any examples, but. It has Merlin relating to the world as a uh, as a pre-modern would someone who actually believes that uh, the heavens are declaring the glory of God that there's that things aren't just things that um, that that things have meaning not just what things are made of but they have a deeper meaning and Merlin like represents that view of a person who uh, is more integrated with the cosmos and I think that's why. He's yeah. important. He he's he's almost like a John, like a Jonathan Pajot or, or or an Annie Crawford, it's someone who is 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 striving to bring back this old vision of the world. Yeah, I like how you say that. Someone who can stand in the gap and be a locus of reintegration between heaven and earth. And I mean, isn't that what Christ did when he stood mm-hmm. on the cross? He, I mean, the incarnation. He's 
Christ, heaven and earth had had been broken. Our relationship with God had been broken and Christ comes and he on the cross reintegrates heaven and earth. I mean, the cross really is even the symbol of, of, of heaven and earth, of vertical and horizontal being brought back together in the sacrifice, the sufferings of Christ, right? And, and you do see Merlin as such a character mm. standing between heaven and earth, reintegrating the powers of heaven and the and 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 earth in a sacrificial way, right? He he dies for this work. And I think mm. I think you know, not just as Merlin seeing the world as meaningful, what's tricky is that Merlin also has power over that, or he he can join himself to the powers of nature. And I think what Lewis was exploring is, you know, this idea that um, is present in church tradition that before the fall, we might've had greater um, power integration with nature. Um, But that part of, you know, one way of thinking about this is that in the garden, we, we, we were naked and unashamed because we were clothed with glory that spirit and body were somehow better integrated. And then at the fall, when we broke relationship with God, we we saw ourselves as naked and we needed to cover ourselves. We lost a power in a sense. And so I think Merlin in a fictional way is exploring a remnant of that original ability for us to, to participate in the powers of nature in a holy way which we've lost. Um, mm-hmm. So that's, that's kind of my, my way of understanding the way that Merlin's able to kind of exercise a magical role is by him being this, um, you know, Numenorean remnant from an age gone by um, that, that we have lost. So yeah, he's a fascinating character. And I wonder, I've wondered too, when, when Jesus came, the, the, the first time, uh, he he had power over creation as well, and to um, to walk on water, to you know, to do all these things, and um, I've wondered too when we um, get receive our glorified bodies, what our power will be like. Mm-hmm. Perhaps um, the picture of Jesus will be what we'll be capable of doing um, in a, in our glorified bodies and. And and that even means for me that there may still be the potential in when heaven and earth are joined, you know, when meaning and matter are together, there may still be dangers. Uh, we yeah. may still need to multiply bread and walk on water and heal and heal sickness, even perhaps, you know. But the the point will be we'll be like Jesus and we'll have that that integration and that mastery uh, return to us. Um, and I think that could be, uh, I don't know, Merlin could be a picture of that, of that as well. So how yeah. can, uh, we begin in our, as we are wrapping up, how can we begin to nourish, uh, our own sacramental view, uh, of the world? What can churches do better? Maybe what are mm-hmm. churches doing well right now, but what can we do better, um, in yes. this regard? That's a great question. Um, and I like that you ask, what are, what are we already doing well? You know, I always want to encourage the church and not just mm-hmm. pick on her, right? <laughs> and I've been very encouraged mm-hmm. by 
within the church in the last 10, 20 years, the, the, the growing support of artists, um, the growing support, because so a sacramental worldview, another way to think of it is, is a poetic worldview, right? We see the world as God's poetry. And so to renew our ability to see sacramentally, we need to renew our, our ability to understand and make art. Art is how we participate as co-creators in that sacramental uh, view. So I see, you know, so the psalmist sees the poetry of God's world, the poetry of a tree, and he participates in that by writing a poem about how the righteous are like a, a tree beside living waters. And so to renew a sacramental understanding goes with a renewal of the arts. The arts are the way in which we um, contemplate the meaning of things, participate in the co-creation, the glor- you know, uh, um, participation in the revealing of that meaning. And so I love to see uh, church art ministries growing, you know, places like the Rabbit Room that, that support artists and promote artists. Um, while I would also say, let's be careful not to idolize artists. You know, we can idolize the scientists and we don't, mm-hmm. artists are humans too. So, you know, I, I think it's important to be careful um, in supporting the, the arts that we don't, you know, that we disciple them. So support artists and disciple artists. Um, so I, I see the church doing that and that's very encouraging. I see a return to an interest, a renewed interest in liturgy and paying attention to the way that um, what we do has meaning. So, you know, one thing I, I've been a worship Mm. leader at church for many years. And one thing I think about a lot as a worship leader is the meaning of where Mm. I stand. I really don't want to stand at the center of the, um, sanctuary because I am not at the center of what we're doing. So I'm always advocating as a musician, let's pay attention to the meaning Mm. of how we're structuring our building. What is our focal point? What is the center at which we're all looking? What is the meaning of that center? So I, I'm encouraged at the way that churches are starting to pay more attention to the meaning of what they do, the meaning of how they structure their service. And I would encourage churches to continue thinking about that, um, to continue you know, yeah, pondering the meaning of the forms that we use, because those forms shape us deeply on a subconscious level. You know, we've been talking away about the way that that modern thinking sort of soaks into the church. Um, you know, the meaning of what we do, of mm-hmm. always looking at the singer, you know, that's subtly shaping the way that we understand things and the way that uh, we see things. So, um, and, and I think, yeah, those are two things I think can really help is to, to renew the arts Pay attention to to story and to poetry and to music and to uh, encourage the development of good art, um, as well as paying attention to the art of our own churches, Uh, what what the way that we live, the forms in which we live, what that is communicating to ourselves and to others. That's fantastic. Uh, I like uh, writing poetry and uh, (laughs) I don't... Um, yeah, (laughs) 
talking about one of my own poems is not a, <laughs> a thing I like to do, but I'm reminded of a poem that I, I wrote recently, and I'll uh, humbly um, talk about that. But it pictures uh, a woman who's between two um, locomotive trains, the one on the right and one on the left. And the one on uh, one of the trains is called Sacramentum, and the and the mm-hmm. other train is called Race, R-E-S, or Thing. And she's between the two locomotives as they're going down these two tracks. And her whole job is to try to pull the trains back together because they're they're moving apart very rapidly. And in my mind, she represents the artist or the poet who's trying to keep race, the matter, and the, and the sacrament together and trying to uh, pull these two worlds back together um, um, and, and, and to maintain that. And I think that's, that is a job of, of the artist or the creator um, now. Um, I love that. So where can people um, – yeah – where can people learn more more about you and what you're doing and and can they participate you're teaching a a class on this on this ransom trilogy is that something that people can get involved in in the future will you be doing it again uh, talk about that yeah thanks so much sam um so the best place to see what i'm up to is at my website anniecrawford.net and i'm on facebook i post a fair amount there Annie Brownell Crawford is my Facebook name, uh, and I'll post what I'm up to as consistently as I can. Um, and yeah, so I, I'm also uh, a leader and fellow at the Society for Women of Letters, and you can find us at societyforwomenofletters.com and on Facebook. And you know what the Society for Women of Letters is about is is cultivating the life of the mind among women from all different walks of life. So I think as a woman, you know, I I love talking with you, Sam, and often I have these great conversations about the life of the mind and the meaning of things with, with, with men. And I think there's a lot of women who are hungry to find female friendships where they can um, talk about these things and learn more about these things too. So the Society for Women of Letters is about cultivating intellectual friendship among women. And we offer events and classes there. Men are welcome. It's just, it's, it's like we, women appreciate when they're invited into men's spaces and we have a woman's space, but you know, everyone's welcome there as well. Um, and at the symbolic world, we are, I think we have three more weeks in our class. We're wrapping up with that hideous strength, but all the classes have been recorded. So if you're interested in, and signing up for the class and receiving access to the recording and uh, listening to those as you cook dinner or clean the house, you can still head over to the symbolic world and find our ransom trilogy course there. And who knows what I'll be doing in the future, but I'll make sure to to post it on Facebook and my website. That's wonderful. And I encourage, I'm going to definitely be uh, listening to those uh, from the symbolic world, but your article Two, I want to recommend, and I'll put a link to that in my show notes, uh, but the article that you wrote for The Symbolic World about, it's just fantastic. You outline the space trilogy and then focus in on gender and its role, and it's really, really, really good and helpful, so I'll put a link for that for people. Uh, anything else you'd like to leave uh, with our listeners? 
Yeah, this has been such a great conversation, Sam. I'm so happy to have met you. And I think the last thought I would leave on that note, that article about gender, which is, you know, a key message of that hideous strength is one of the most important places for us to renew a sacramental understanding and for us to meditate on the meaning of things is in our own bodies, our own bodies made male and female, right? We live in a world that doesn't know what a woman is famously anymore, right? So there really is an urgency Mm -hmm. to recover a sense of the sacredness of our own bodies uh, and let, let the recovery and the renewal Um, between heaven and earth begin right there. So thanks for linking to the article. I appreciate it. My guest today has been Annie Crawford. This has been episode 100 of Bumper Sticker Faith. Uh, If you want to learn more, go to BumperStickerFaith.com and we'll see you next time. I try to follow my own advice as we buy a, a, a work of art from an artist that we know um, at least once or twice a year. I got Peugeot's, one of his carvings there. And so, yeah, I'd love to see his art because we we try to, I don't buy any kitsch from Target, you know, my house. (laughs) I try to only fill it with work from artists that I learn about and and support. So I would love to see what he's up to. Yeah, he has a great uh, Instagram page and just, so many good things. So anyways, anyways, uh, thanks. Isn't it interesting that like farmers, like I've noticed the people who are close to nature are the ones right now who are most able to stay sane Mm -hmm. and see the meaning of things because, Mm -hmm. you know, the way that technology has us more and more abstracted Mm -hmm. from the things God has made and the order of the world, the easier it is for us to be deceived and confused and the people who live near like i don't know if you paul king's north right the Mm -hmm. people who live near the earth are those who are doing the best art uh having deep wisdom and i I think that's really interesting to watch to me it's it's a restoration of the of the feminine because that's that's the that's the body you know mother earth um and yeah, our our materialistic age now, uh, I think a lot of people blame like the the patriarchy, and we say it's capitalism, and and that's what's wrong with our world. But materialism comes from mater, right, which is the word mm, for mother, yes. and so it is a, a materialism is a, is a dysfunctional uh, view of the feminine, and like I was just I was. I was driving yesterday in my suburban area, and we have this one like half mile. Uh, well, these were all over the place, but this is just an example. A half mile uh, strip of road where there's like, there's probably over a hundred different stores. And it's like, what is wrong with us? Like, if, if you were to, there's something obviously wrong that we have to have all these. I don't know, all these comforts, all these things built up. It's like it's like you look at someone's bed and they have five hundred pillows on it. You're like, what's wrong with this person? You know, there's something there's something wrong here. And just driving through any community, seeing all these things, it's like something's gone drastically wrong. And um mm. and that yeah, that's I think why C.S. Lewis too is so prophetic and bringing back uh, the the healthy we need a healthy father and we need a healthy uh feminine as well. Yeah, I love that. 
Yes, I think that's why, in a sense, materialism feels like a kind of misogyny. Yeah. The objectification of the material to control and commodify it for my pleasure. Yeah. Well, isn't that yeah. old school misogyny to objectify women in order to, you know, control and use them for our own pleasure? Yeah. That's, that, that's a great... That'd make a good article, Sam. That's why, like I thought of Owen Barfield, I had those thoughts about words and language, but Owen Barfield said that you can't, um, like examine something, look at something objectively and have it lose its meaning. Like you can't see meaning and objectify something at the same time. If you're going to turn it into an object to study, it has to lose its meaning. And like, we've just, I don't know. I have, and then Ian McGilchrist works too. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I'm beginning to think that I was lying in bed last night trying to sleep and like I have these three um, ideas circling in my mind, like Ian McGilchrist's work on the brain. Uh, in the, in, are you familiar with that? Um, mm-hmm. But it's like, it's the same thing as the masculine-feminine uh, divide, I think. In my head, Ian is saying the same things, that we, the, the right brain is, is meaning and the left brain is, um, mm-hmm. uh, is matter or manipulation. Um, and we, you obviously need the correct balance, but what he's saying is that we, we're, the left brain is taking control and we're objectifying and um, uh, mm-hmm. being able to manipulate and all that. We totally lost the meaning of things. Um, but then yeah. that that's like the curse too from Genesis. And, uh, and that's, that's what I was wondering in bed last night. I was like, is that the curse? When God cursed uh, the, the men and, and not, he didn't curse male and fe- female, but when he said that the, there were, the relationship between the masculine and feminine would be out of whack, is, is, like, is this what God was saying? That this rise of the unhealthy materialism and then the misogyny at the same time, is that you know, what, he's, what he was saying? This disjoining of, of, of the brain of you know, all of reality? So anyways. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And that connects to Lewis's meditation and tool shed. And we did yeah. talk about this. So if, if you go listen to the archives on our Symbolic World class, we um, talked about that. And the way that um, Mathieu in his book talks about, you know, the fall as, as, I mean, death is what? Separation. And so the fall was this separate. So, so creation is made in the beginning was heaven and earth. There's the duality between heaven and earth is a creative duality. That's the life creating duality. And the fall was the breaking of that creative duality. The the severing Mm. of the healthy integrated relationship between heaven, earth, male, female, left brain, right brain, meaning, Mm -hmm. matter. Right. So it's that fractal pattern. Yeah that that emerges at every level. So I think your intuition there is really is really spot on.